0: Practice as a way of life. The retreat world, whether it's one hour, or ten days, or six weeks, or three months, is a very protected world. And it can feel like a way of life that should go on and on and on. You know, there's an ease with this life of non-harming renunciation. There's the feeling of being protected with the concentration, with the non-harming, and then with the wisdom and the compassion that blossoms inside us. So we're being at the retreat to learn to value these qualities and this way of life. And as we move out into our household life or our daily life, at the end of 1997, it's not usually as protected a life. We will want to bring this way of life (coughs) out into our life, whatever it is. Uh, But we have to realize that it just usually (laughs) isn't quite this quiet. (laughs) Or this simple. I mean, if you think about what a busy day is at IMS. (laughs) (laughs) It's when you have an interview. (laughs) And maybe a day where you have an interview and laundry, you know, it'll feel like you might not have time. (laughs) (laughs) So it's probably going to speed up a little. And when it gets to the point where you forget (laughs) that there's a simplicity in this world like this, try to remember that this world of peacefulness exists. You know, it's here in us whenever we remember. So bringing this way of peace out into the world is our challenge. And it's so easy to get lost outside of ourselves, or inside of ourselves when we live a busy life. And we forget that kind of irresistible purity that the practice um, is. The practice allows us to explore really deeply the remote regions inside of ourselves, and to become very intimate with them. And we, re- we, we really learn how to return more and more deeply to ourselves, to our life, to the moment. When we shift worlds, we shift from this world of non-doing, of, n- of simplicity, of non-harming, to the world of doing. So we shift out of this exquisite intimacy with ourselves, It's usually what we miss the most, is this closeness with life, with ourselves and the world and these fresh eyes that we have. And we go out into the world, which is usually a bit more complicated, but it's still the same world, the human world of joy and sorrow. And we have this great potential when we leave a retreat of bringing this depth of understanding and compassion. Not only the wisdom and compassion, but the intention to understand, the intention to be compassionate. Non-judgmental attention. It's that simple. The Buddha taught that a guarded mind brings happiness. And that won't change. It's still the same. A guarded mind brings happiness. So hopefully our motivation will be to know ourselves well and to know others well. When I first um, did a three-month retreat, when it came to this point where we were about to break silence, just before sunset, I got my sleeping bag And I walked out behind IMS into the woods without a flashlight because I didn't want to come back and I knew if I had a flashlight (coughs) I'd come back. Uh, So I went out uh, and even though it snowed I went way out back there and I spent the night and I just couldn't face breaking silence. And I was so unprepared for it. I had no idea how afraid I was. I didn't know I was excited. I didn't know I was afraid. I just knew I couldn't handle it. And I was out there in this little cave, so happy, thinking, you know, I avoided it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, what a good idea, you know, (laughs) laying out there freezing in the snow, so happy. And morning came, you know, and I realized, well, I guess I just <laughs> have to go back. At some point, I knew I had to go back into this building uh, and break silence. And I didn't have this understanding that breaking silence was part of the practice, you know, that moving back into the world was a part of the practice. It's an art to break silence. And even though we might know each moment is new, that each moment is born and dies, and we learn to begin again and begin again, when we move out, we're moving out sort of halfway into the world this next week. We'll be moving out into silence, but then there'll be a full schedule And we get to have this practice of speaking and then going back into the silence. Speaking, going back into silence. And it's a very gentle practice if we follow the schedule. You know, you don't have to blow it off. You don't have to um, go into this and hit the deck. (laughs) You know, we've created a schedule in a way so that we can do this gently. And it's much better to do it gently. I really recommend when you hear a bell that calls us to to sit even though you're having the most interesting conversation in the world and it just seems so important to continue because it will, come sit. you Because know, once you start talking, sometimes you can talk for 8 hours, 12 hours, all night and you won't realize what it's doing because there's so much energy. And then, when you come to sit, <laughs> if you go 8 or 12 hours, I want to guarantee that you'll notice it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'll Even if you talk for half an hour, or 45 minutes, and then sit, it's so interesting to watch what the talking does. So much energy goes through the body. No matter how long I sit when I break silence, and how little I speak, When I go sit or or lie down afterwards, I just feel like I'm flying. You know, there's so much energy. And you can do this with balance. I've done it many times without balance. (laughs) And I just would wish for you that you can do it more gently than I used to do. When I start, I can't stop talking. Uh, So when you hear the bell, if you're like me, you know, really... (laughs) It's like the Pied Piper, try to follow the bell into the hall. And if you see other people talking and sort of caught talking, you might even encourage each other to come sit. So please try to use this next week as practice. And then use that next week of moving out more into your life as practice. Try to see that the retreat is just going to go on and on, that the practice is a way of life, and it goes on and on. Each moment is worthy of our attention. You know, that's the great gift of the Vipassana practice, really. You know, that there's um, nothing we're trying to get. We're just trying to bring this attention to the worthiness of our life, of each moment, the preciousness of our life. so we will be moving from this world of just being, of quiet to the world of activity, of relationship, of speaking, and we will experience fear and excitement. And try to be aware of those experiences as we go through this change, that it's part of the world of change to notice fear and excitement. There's a lot that can be said for paying attention to speech or speech. It could be a whole talk. Uh, But I recommend remembering that speaking and listening um, are really connected. There's a practice that I recommend also to try for maybe five minutes. Uh, Not only is right speech challenging. <laughs> uh, but it's very difficult to be mindful of speaking. You know, It's just something that is very challenging for us humans. It's so easy to get lost in the content of the thinking. So if you do follow the schedule, it can be really interesting to notice our relationship to listening, to speaking, and also to notice when the speaking Starts to focus around somebody who isn't present. Uh, that can be, it not only is mindfulness of speech challenging, but to keep the speech limited to just who's present. Try it for just five minutes. It's even hard to do for five minutes. Then try to do it sometimes for ten minutes. Bring it in in the next few days. And notice how much silence there is if we don't talk about other people that aren't there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really (laughs) interesting. There's a lot more pauses. There's a lot more holding the silence. What do we talk about? Of course, what do we talk about? (laughs) When somebody asked me how my retreat was, I usually just say, it was full. (laughs) It really covers everything. (laughs) You can say it was empty, (laughs) you can say it was full, (laughs) it covers it all. This is an old Native American saying and I think it covers uh, the whole practice in our life. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. It really is that simple. And it's so powerful if we can remember that. How do we live our life in that kind of manner that when we die, the world cries and we rejoice? It usually depends on how much we value our spiritual life and how committed we are to our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is very vast and hopefully we've gotten in touch with that, that it's so breathtaking and awesome and beyond us. And if we can be in touch each day with very simple things like our deep motivation for being here on the planet, or our deepest wishes for ourselves, our deepest wishes for another, if we just started the day with that, um, that can usually help get us in touch in a harmonious way with ourselves and with our life. It doesn't mean that we do um, famous things or necessarily big things. It's that we bring light and this commitment to um, non-harming and understanding to each moment. If we have the intention to take care of ourselves happily, of children, of elders, of each other, ourselves. That awareness is the greatest gift that we can give to the world. Each of us has a unique way of doing that. And we have to break our own trail. We have to find our own trail in how we do that. Duke Ellington said, I just took the energy it takes to pout, and wrote some blues. (laughs) So if we can take the energy that it takes us to pout, when we go out into the world, and put it into our spiritual practice, think of how much energy we would have. It's, again, simple, taking the practice out into our life. If we remember that a guarded mind brings happiness, that that's fundamentally what the Buddha taught, then the commitment is to bring as much mindfulness into our day as we can, or the Brahma Viharas into our life. There are so many practices, I'll just mention them and try to cover a few of them. During this week we're going to have other people at night, The resident teacher, Gloria, is going to be one night, and then Mirabai Bush will be another night, and then uh, Jack Engler will be another night. Each of them presenting like a different facet of bringing the practice out into the world. And we're really lucky to have them come and share with us to to bring these different facets to our um, easing back into our life in the world. So, just to mention a few practices out of the vastness that I could choose. Mindfulness, brahmaviharas, viharas simplifying our lives. Practicing patience, non-harming, being a spiritual friend for someone. Stretching, working beyond our limits, just finding that edge at times in whatever way that's important for us. Listening, generosity, gratitude, forgiveness, kindness. These are all ways, these practices, to bring inner and outer harmony. Most of you have heard, because you've gone to other retreats before, to try to manage to sit every day, or to walk every day. For some of us, that's easy, and for some of us, it's difficult. For some people, it's effortless. It's just part of their lives. For some people, it remains a great mystery how people do that, how people manage to do that. You know, There's that full range of us in this room. But I recommend, wherever we are in that spectrum, to try to take some quiet time in a day, to value that quiet time however that looks, uh, that without that remembering to listen deeply and to check in, we tend to start forgetting and lose that thread of what our spiritual life is about. It's so easy to forget the value of taking that quiet time And if we don't always get to take that quiet time in a day, to take some pauses. Like, I look forward to to stoplights. I used to hate stoplights because they stopped me and I wanted to get places. And still I can get in that mood of getting somewhere. Uh, But at some point, because it's become a practice of mine to practice at stoplights, at some points I, I get a breath. That's how fast it's going to get, at times. that you'll be grateful for stoplights. <coughs> it's hard to remember that from this perspective. Uh, but sooner or later, <laughs> you'll notice. When it gets really bad for me, I head for a bathroom. <laughs> you know, if I can't get any pauses and there's no stoplights, I take longer in whatever bathroom I find, you know, just getting some quiet time. Don't flush the toilet so quickly. (laughs) Whatever. Take your time somewhere. It's so easy for us to remember from this perspective how important it is to clean the mind. We clean our hearts here. We beautify the heart here. But out there, you know, we clean our house, we clean the car, you know, we go to work. And then where does cleaning the mind come in, where does cleaning the heart come in? And again, and it, it's so easy to lose that thread of how important that is. So those are really basic um, suggestions. And please, in the mornings when we do um, sittings and question and answers, Please ask about any questions you have around that, how to bring the Brahma Viharas in or how to do this. One way that I found to bring the Brahma Viharas in is to realize how important the benefactor or dear friend has been in my life by doing these brahma one gets that sense of the power of a spiritual friend, and being a spiritual friend for someone. If we understand how important kindness is in this world, this won't be too big a stretch. We'll know that we're bringing a lifeline to somebody. It is like seeing somebody drowning and throwing a lifeboat, or a life raft. And it's important in this world. It is probably the most important thing in this world. A uh, spiritual friend brings meaning in this desert of life. It brings, they bring water to us. It's like an oasis. There's so many ways to express kindness, whether one becomes a staff person at a retreat. Or maybe we support a monk or nun in Asia. Or maybe we go to some deeper level of compassionate action that calls us somewhere in this world. A warm smile in a grocery store. It's just having that idea that we're going to bring some light into this world in whatever way we do. In some ways, I've seen that us human beings suffer the most around, what can I do in this world? You know, what is my spiritual instruction? How can I bring light into this world? We suffer deeply over this. What... What? What will the world rejoice um, when I die, or will they cry? No. This is deep in our hearts. And to find the way that it's right for us to bring light in the world. Remember, it is as simple as being warm to someone or bringing water to somebody in very short moments, but they're genuine moments. They don't require big commitments sometimes, or they do require big commitments sometimes. This is a poem by David White called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this is the breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now, until now. There have been times when my sister has been quite ill and I haven't been able to see her, and I just remember that I can breathe with her across the miles, you know, I just breathe with her, breathe with her, and share that breath. We can bring light into the world, just sharing breath with each other. That's enough. Facing our limits and working within our limits helps us to actually be genuine. If we try too hard and try to do too much, and we get burnt out, (coughs) we can't do this. We can't be a spiritual friend. And we can't always see how we're affecting someone. Last year I went to my nephew's um, college graduation party. When I was younger I raised my nephew and nieces when they were young and for some years And there was a person who came to the graduation party, um, who was 33. And when he walked into the house, everyone at first went, who's that? (laughs) Uh, No one recognized him at first, and then we figured out who he was. And his father had been in jail most of his life, and he had a really tough life. Um, I never thought this boy was going to make it. And, of course, we don't know we're having a tough childhood when we're growing up. And there were several children around besides my nieces and nephew that I really wanted to take care of. And I knew they were drowning, but I didn't have it. You know, I would have drowned if I extended to those children. But it was very hard in my heart when those children were around. I would try to do a little bit, uh, but I never felt it was enough. I would feel guilty whenever I saw them and when I was lying down to go to sleep. But when he was around, I would notice that he would disappear into the edges of things. He'd try to disappear and not um, really be out in the house or running around. And when food was served, I would see he would suffer tremendously because the food that was around was not anything like the culture he was from. And he would start to cry and people would get mad at him for not eating the food. So I would slip out and I would take him to the grocery store and ask him to choose what he wanted. And he would always go to this section of cans of SpaghettiOs. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, my relationship with him was going to the store and getting him SpaghettiOs, coming home, and cooking them up, really big commitment, right? (laughs) Warm them up, you know, serve them. Uh, That was my relationship with him. Uh, So when I saw him, I went up to him and said hi, and when he recognized me, he got this huge smile on his face, and he said one word. 23 years later, he said, Spaghetti! <laughs> 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 yeah, and he thanked me. You know, he said that I saved him. You know, He said when it would come to that point, he would just be so over the edge and um, he would just lose it. And just that gesture of getting him SpaghettiOs would save him each time. And I was so shocked. I thought I did nothing. I felt that it was never enough. And his heart, after what he's been through, um, his heart is so open and so beautiful. I'm amazed. And that taught me a lot. You know, Being with him 23 years later taught me a lot that sometimes we can't extend, but we do the best we can. there's so much suffering in this world, we can always do more than what we can do. Ryo Kahn, the great Zen poet, when he said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to hold all the suffering in this world. But we find our edge and extend there. You know, that's the beauty of life. Practicing generosity. The reason I brought up spaghettios is because the Buddha said, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. If you knew what I knew, and that, that story just shows how much even though all I did would be heat up the the spaghettios, you know, that feeding someone has great power in this world. For me, when I wake up every morning, one of the things I do is try to feed something, the birds, mice, anything outside, uh, because I feel in that moment that I wake up and do something like that, I feel in harmony, I experience that interconnectedness and it's become a very important practice for me. If we do connect with nature, we can often heal any kind of wounds or self-centeredness or getting really lost. Uh, We can find ourselves often in nature if that's a place of connection for us. It's important to cultivate the places in our life that we connect with spiritually. Learn what they are. If it's not nature, it could be feeding someone, a a human being. There was a, um, a young adult that did one of our first young adult retreats and at 15 he started a soup kitchen For the homeless, for three years now, he's had a soup kitchen for the homeless. And so that, that action of generosity, and he's, he's blossomed um, to the point where he really had to leave high school a year early. And <laughs> you know, he's so much into his spiritual practice, he comes to the study center and he's doing um, independent courses. One of the things that I find in life in 1997 is how hard it is to keep life simple. You might forget that after three months or after six weeks, uh, but to me that's the crux of whether we really can keep our spiritual practice alive or if it's just a memory. If we don't make life simple enough to be able to take the time to see a cloud pass through the sky, or to really be with a friend, or to really be with ourselves, it's going to be a memory. It's not going to be kept alive. To me that's the essence of moving back out into the world, is to you know, edit. <laughs> edit. Edit your life. Keep. Eliminating, 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 Uh, or, or the spiritual, the heart just dies. And we can see, when we come into retreat, how long did it take your heart to revive on this retreat. The degree that it took your heart to revive on this retreat is the degree to how unsimple one's life is. And it's not to say that that's wrong or bad. But it's just to get the idea of how hard it is to do what I'm saying. And if we don't value it, we're going to get overwhelmed by those lists of things to do. And that blinking red light on the answering machine, you know, blink, blink, blink. <laughs> Ten calls, twenty calls, thirty calls. <laughs> you know, it's we've got a great technology. We can be so hooked in, we can spend all night answering email. You know, it's just somewhere along the line one has to stop each day. Patience and motivation are other practices, and just to Remember that having the motivation to really understand and be compassionate is important, but also having patience with that is also important. We need to take a short-term view and a long-term view. The short-term view is remembering one step at a time, one breath at a time, and that really the practice is that simple. But also we can measure how we feel, we've changed. But I recommend doing that in one year chunks, or five year chunks, or ten year chunks. Now that I'm going to be 46, I could say, take a 20 year chunk, (laughs) or a 25 year chunk, whatever. It really helps to also have that um, long term view. We are very much in a hurry in our culture. And it's hard for us to remember that 20 years is short. In terms of change, in terms of a really fundamental change. Rooting out aversion, for example, or rooting out attachment is what I'm talking about here. <laughs> Not about you know what color our hair is, or how short it is. That's easy to change. Uh, But this depth of rooting out aversion and attachment and delusion, it it takes some time. But there are those stories at the time of the Buddha when so-and-so got fully enlightened listening to the Buddha. My theory is that we're all here because we didn't have that happen at the time (laughs) of the Buddha. (laughs) So, we really have to take that long-term view. (laughs) A little more than a 25 year chunk. When we're moving out into the world, it's important to remember that the practice can go on, on a deep level. Dogen, the great Zen master said, To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Remember as you move out into the world that to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Each moment, each day, that that's possible. read one more poem from the book Crazy Horse and Stillness and think about yourself moving out into the world into your life into your village whatever your village is uh, this is a poem about Crazy Horse returning from a vision quest or time quiet alone out in the world out in, the, out in nature It's called the return, as you'll be doing a return soon. The return. As he surfaced from his trance, objects became distinguishable around him, losing, at the same time, their namelessness. But trees withdrew what they'd been saying. Rocks regressed to their eyelessness. And Crazy Horse inhabited himself again, wondering where he'd been and for how long. His chest ached with meaning. But what was it? He knew everything the world needed to know. This. He stood up and began walking, first one step and then another the people of his village could feel him coming toward them one step at a time. One little minor detail about life in our culture is that that might not happen for us, that last bit. All of it will be true and maybe for some of it, some of us, some of that will be true. But can you imagine the people of your village listening for you? Feeling you coming toward them, one step at a time. Is the red carpet out for you, rejoicing that you've taken this time to do this retreat? You know, where this practice came from, in a Buddhist culture, you would be greeted that way. You know, there would be that understanding of what you've done here. And treating what you've done here as the most noble thing you can do in your life. And if you're not being met that way as you walk toward your village, you'll have to do it for yourself. Or really get in touch with a spiritual friend. We see in this way the power of Sangha the beauty of sangha, even if it's just one person you find to connect with in terms of somebody supporting your spiritual practice, even if it's not this practice, but just valuing these basic things I'm saying, um, it's again a lifeline. One way to explore this in our minds is to imagine doing this practice alone. I mean, from birth (laughs) to death, having no one who's into spiritual practice. It's unimaginable. It's impossible. That's how much we need each other. That's what the Buddha meant by a hundred percent of the spiritual life is friendship. Listen to the tape that um, I'm going to play for the last bit of this talk. I wanted to end with a poem by Kenji Miyazawa. This is a poem that um, is held very dear by an environmental group in Japan. The only environmental group in Japan, and this group, I had the honor of being with last year at an environmental conference in Hawaii. Uh, And they're looking really deeply into their Buddhist roots to get in touch with um, how they can bring environmental ethics and non-harming into their world in Japan. Kenji Miyazawa is a, a very favorite poet in Japan. And this poem, think about right intention. You know, Even if we can't always live up to our wishes for ourselves and others, if we can't live up to our intention, but to have an intention like this in our life. Unbeaten by rain, unbeaten by wind, neither by snow nor by heat of summer, to have so stout a body and not to have greed to never be angry, smiling every, ever calmly. To eat four cups of rough rice a day with bean soup and a bit of vegetables. To see and to hear calmly, and to understand, and to forget nothing. Disregarding oneself about all affairs. To live in a small thatched cottage in the shade of pine trees in a field if there is any sick child in the east to go and take care of him if there is any tired mother in the west to go and carry the sheaves of rice for her if there is anyone who is about to die to go and tell him not to be frightened if there is any quarrel or lawsuit in the north to stop it telling them that it is of no use. To shed tears when there is a long drought. To walk around tearfully in a cold summer. To be called an idiot by everyone. Neither to be praised nor to be considered a nuisance. That is what I wish to be. So remember that this world of peacefulness exists, no matter what happens. And to help reinforce that, when Steve was in Burma, uh, he would listen to the nuns in this place in Sagain Hills in Burma chant this metta chant. And to remember that these nuns chant this every day, that it's part of their practice and how they study. And sometimes they chant all together, sometimes in small groups and at different times of the day. And I think you'll feel the irresistible purity in, the, in this chant. And remember that the mindfulness is this simple, just to remember to come back to keep this moment alive, to return more deeply and more deeply to ourselves in this world in harmony.